I love a good road trip. Most of us do. When people talk about what they love about travel, it's the sights, the change of pace, and often meeting new people who are also traveling. That last one, meeting new people, doesn't always translate to road trips. We tend to be more cautious about the people we meet out on the road. I've done a lot of road tripping. I still do a fair bit, and why not? The American Southwest is famous for its roads. Over half of old Route 66 runs through the Southwest. There are others, the Santa Fe Trail, the Camino Real, and the Million Dollar Highway come to mind. And some have spooky names like the Devil's Highway. Even today, much of the Southwest is made up of wide open spaces, sparsely developed areas of mountain and plain, desert valleys and broad plateaus cut through by unnaturally straight lines of road. Wild rivers carving their way through deep canyons are paralleled by black snakes of asphalt. We love these roads and it's no mystery why. It's these long, narrow ribbons of pavement that border and crisscross the wild terrain that allow us something superficially resembling free access from the interior of the Southwest to the outside world and back again. They carry us efficiently over the vast and intimidating spaces that separate one part of the Southwest from another, and they showcase the splendor of the land along every mile. People write songs and books about these roads. But the awe these roads inspire isn't only because they're beautiful, they can also be dangerous. Both on high mountain passes and low altitude deserts, weather changes rapidly. Long stretches of road are isolated from cities and towns, and it's not unusual to see a sign that the next services are over a hundred miles away, even on the interstate. Who might you meet out there, out away from the islands of civilization? Over time, there's been a litany of violence and illegal activities associated with these routes, and some of them are more dangerous now than at any other time in their history. One infernally named bit of Devil's Highway is both an old unmaintained track and the wilderness surrounding it. The road itself, such as it is, parallels a section of the U.S.-Mexico border, mostly on the Arizona side, but also over in Sonora, nestled in isolated stretches of desert along its entire route. In some places, seemingly lifeless flats of alkaline sands give way to rusty black pillars of rock, rising to claw the cloudless sky. And you suspect the map is telling tales about the Tinajas hidden within the rocks, because how could anything, much less water, hide in a place like that? Other sections of this Devil's Highway plod along through rolling hills covered with Palo Verde trees and shrubby Ocotillo, with imposing saguaro, pitaya, and choya cactus casting their shadows on the dozen other species of flowering cactus at their feet. These verdant regions of the desert also support a surprising amount of animal life, and even passing through, it's evident how people can hide themselves and their secrets in this desert. This is where immigrants and traffickers alike die of exposure, where illicit cargoes go missing, where Edward Abbey's remains are illegally interred somewhere in the Cabeza Prieta wilderness. Maybe you've had the chance to drive past it or through it. 
If you find it beautiful, it's a stark beauty. And you'll still be grateful for good AC in that bladder buster sized cold drink that you bought. The rock formations are monumental and striking, and the desert blooms are beautiful, but you may find yourself wondering about the lack of shelter from the heat. You may wonder about the harsh evolutionary past that spawned not just venomous serpents, but lizards with venomous saliva. You may find yourself thinking that this would be a great place to hide a body if the need were to arise. Wicked thoughts. And then you remember where you are. The diabolical moniker on this place isn't just cartographic cheekiness. It's the punishing dry heat, yes, but it's also the human tragedy and chaos that have ruled the place for as long as anyone's bothered to take note. I used to drive a road that crossed this devil's highway, from a place where the desert met the sea, inland through distinct zones of desert, to cross the border and back again. Overwhelmingly, I drove it alone and in daylight, only a handful of times at night. It was beautiful and weird and lonesome, and yet full of a presence that left me never really alone. I saw strange things. I can't say whether or not or to what degree any devils hold sway in that region, but I'll say that divine and otherwise supernatural powers are invoked here. Travelers desiring protection and safe passage through the desert petition a saint of specific patronage, and it's not St. Christopher. Welcome back to Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and today there's a long stretch of desert highway visible from the virtual kitchen window. I invite you to sit down and enjoy something cold while you listen. This is my podcast where I share strange and spooky tales from the American Southwest. Today, I'll talk about road tripping and road hazards in the Southwest, and some of the supernatural power you might call upon for aid if you're in a tight spot. If you've never heard of Jesus Malverde, you're in for some fascinating history, folk history, and folk religion. You'll find out why Malverde is revered in the desert wilds near the border, and how lately he's cozying up at the right hand of La Santa Muerte in the uncanon of Narco Saints. Ten years ago, I was living in a small town in Sonora, Mexico, in a coastal village on the north end of the Sea of Cortez, and I was in the throes of a professional identity crisis. I had just completed my master's, but I hadn't applied to any doctoral programs. I wasn't teaching at that moment, and the editing and translation gigs I picked up weren't quite enough to keep me busy. I was also fighting a long bout of insomnia. Mostly, I walked on the beach, read, and wrote endless false starts for a series of essays that I had planned. I also ingested ungodly quantities of fish tacos. That part was glorious. Don't let anyone tell you that excess, at least the right kind of excess, can't be a good thing. But seafood diet aside, I was kind of a mess. I was there in Sonora in the first place because of my husband's job. My work was portable to any place with good internet, but his work was on site. He'd taken a job with a development firm just after graduation. Like me, the town was suffering an identity crisis. 
only it was caught between its roots as a fishing village and its aspirations as an upscale seaside resort. It wasn't a simple process, and my husband worked lots of long hours. I had my writer's block to keep me company. I also had car keys, and so sometimes I went for a drive. We were a little over 60 miles from the border, and the closest border crossing was where the Mexican town of Sonoita, Sonora, comes up against Lukeville, Arizona, USA. Some denizens of Lukeville reject that name and will only refer to their town as Gringo Crossing. I'll let you interpret that as you will. Not only was Sonoita, Lukeville the nearest crossing, we'd also taken a post office box in Lukeville so that we could still get our U.S. mail. This meant that, periodically, either my husband or I had to make a border run to check the mail. I had more time than he did, and so it wasn't long before I'd worked a twice-weekly postal run to the border into my routine. The checkpoint line at the border gets backed up, so I went in the mornings. I drop my husband at his office, then head to the Pemex gas station at the north edge of town for a top-off and a Diet Coke, and turn out onto Carretera Ocho, Federal Highway 8 with the stereo cranked high to the local Rock en Español station, and I'd sing along to Juanes or Julieta Venegas at the top of my lungs. I'd watch the changing zones of the desert go by. I drove past fallen-down ruins of wooden shacks and past stubborn, squatty rooms made of cinder block, roofless and doorless, with clumps of blown-in tumbleweed visible through the windows. On either side of the long, straight road were occasional pullouts, usually with small shrines. Some were the size of a small shed, others as tiny as a doghouse. Most were covered in stucco and bright paint, with dusty panes of glass separating the offerings and objects of devotion from the weather and grime of the highway. At first, I stopped out of passing curiosity but quickly I made a practice of breaking up the trip by checking out a different one each time. I could see that there was at least one somebody maintaining each shrine. It was work to beat back the sand, and it was clear that someone was trying. Some images and offerings were more recent. Photos and handwritten notes of thanks or petition, testaments of miracles, were collected behind the glass, out of the weather. Withered flowers were removed periodically. Further, there were always tire tracks where other cars had pulled up to the shrines. I never met another person at one of them. Indeed, traffic on the highway was usually light, but it was clear that each shrine received regular visitors. For the most part, I recognized the saints I saw in the images and figures at the shrines. There were various manifestations of the Virgin and the Lord, mostly La Virgen de Guadalupe, and of Jesus showing his sacred heart aflame. I saw San Juan Diego, San Judas Tadeo, and many others, even once the local folk saint, Santa Teresita Urrea, from nearby Caborca. Here and there I saw La Santa Muerte, but small, three or four inch plastic bultos, or laminated prayer cards, there were two elements, though, an absence and a presence, that over time struck me as strange. The first was the absence. I only once saw San Cristobal, St. Christopher. There were plenty of others I never saw, but Cristobal is the patron saint of travelers, and specifically of motorists. 
At roadside shrines on a highway that sees some sketchy business, I would have expected to see more devotion to the guardian and protector of people who spend time on the road. The second odd thing was the presence of an image I hadn't seen before, at least not in the context of a shrine. Later, I realized that I'd seen his image on a few bumper stickers back home in Colorado, and that I'd just assumed he was a norteño or mariachi singer. The first time I saw a small bust of him at a highway shrine in Sonora, I wondered what Vicente Fernández was doing in a shrine and what had happened to his big sombrero. The image of the man at the shrines had thick black hair and a huge mustache and wore a white dress shirt with a cravat, usually green. While the other saints at the shrines were depicted in shapeless robes and halos, the Vicente Fernández look-alike had the glamour of a silent film star. One image of the man said, Jesus Malverde. At the time, I hadn't heard of him, and his name didn't tell me who he was. So I looked him up. I found a few things online that said he was a narco-saint, a folk saint and a patron of those engaged in illicit activities. I knew about La Santa Muerte, of course, and wondered how they fit together. Without thinking much about it, I had assumed that coyotes and drug smugglers also used Carretera Ocho, which I had begun to think of as my highway. It must have crossed my mind again when I saw the images of La Santa Muerte at the shrines, but she was familiar to me, and this Jesus Malverde was not. His presence gave me a shiver. But I still went to get the mail. Probably because I was thinking about him, I started noticing images of Jesus Malverde around town, mostly as window clings on rear windshields, but sometimes also in shops. I even saw him on a few t-shirts. I asked about him. I had the good sense to know that leading with the narco-saint bit might be offensive, so I just asked who he was. Some people were reticent to say much, but a few others gushed. He's the saint we pray to for good fortune they said, for the business to do well. They called him El Ángel de los Pobres, the Angel of the Poor, and El Bandido Generoso, the Generous Bandit. He was a poor but brave man who had fought the corrupt officials of the Porfiriato and given the money back to the people. He was betrayed and martyred, almost necessary elements for sainthood. The more I listened and the more I read, I realized that they were talking about a Mexican hero in the mold of Robin Hood. The Malverde devotees I met in Sonora were proud of him. He was apparently a real person, or some scholars believe a mashup of two or three real men. And he was a local boy from Sinaloa, the next state to the south. Unlike the dry deserts of Sonora to the north, Sinaloa is fertile and green, but largely agricultural and largely poor. It was an economically depressed place in the 1870s when Jesus Juarez Maso was born in a poor Sinaloan village to poor parents. He was mestizo, of mixed Spanish and indigenous blood. By the time he was 10 years old, he was orphaned, largely due to squalid conditions and food shortages. It was a bad time to be poor and brown in Mexico. The country was embarking on a new era of change with considerable growing pains. This was the beginning of the Porfiriato, the reign of Mexican President Porfirio Diaz.
From the outside and from the top, Diaz's presidency meant positive change, a period characterized by order, tremendous economic growth, modernization, improved relations with global powers, especially the U.S. and European nations, and crackdowns on banditry and on corruption in local governments. All of this came at a high cost. Foreign privatization of natural resources, a widening gap between the wealthy and the poor, rejection of Mexico's indigenous and mestizo heritage, and swapping out local corrupt officials for equally corrupt federal appointees. Money flowed into Mexico, but not down, and much of it back out into foreign pockets. While some parts of the country dashed into the 20th century, others were left farther behind than before, and with fewer resources to play catch-up. In general terms, it was discontent with the policies of the Porfiriato and their effects that triggered the Mexican Revolution, which raged mostly across the northern states and along the U.S. border. Diaz's aims at progress had failed working Mexicans, and men like Jesus Malverde were there to stick it to the man. The mostly rural Pacific Coast state of Sinaloa is over 700 miles from the presidential palace in Mexico City, and in terms of lifestyle and ideology, it was much further than that during the Porfiriato. Backwaters like rural Sinaloa suffered tremendously under Diaz. After dismissing local leaders, Diaz appointed his friend Francisco Cañedo to rule the state from the governor's palace in the capital city of Culiacán. By this time, Jesús Juárez Maso was a young man, energetic, a skilled marksman and thief, and with limitless rancor towards the government and the upper classes, which were largely one and the same. After his parents' deaths, he had worked wherever he could, harvesting, herding, doing carpentry, even working a blasting crew and laying track for the railroad that spread like an iron spider across the country. Somewhere along the way, he turned to theft and banditry. He was good at it. He had flair. The poor and disenfranchised admired him and began singing his praises, literally, in narrative songs called corridos. The wealthy and powerful who feared him began to call him Malverde, bad green or evil green. There's no solid etymology for this nom de guerre, but it had a ring to it, and it stuck. And it sounded good in the corridos. For years, Malverde and his band struck up and down the coast and in the best neighborhoods of Culiacán, then scattered the spoils in villages before retreating to the heavily forested mountains, out of Governor Cañedo's reach. Rewards and incentives were offered, but the people hated Cañedo and the Porfiriato he represented, and they loved Malverde. Nobody turned him in, and the banditry continued. Malverde made Cañedo look like a fool, and this threatened his power. The governor had to answer to his jefe in Mexico City, who had tasked him with upholding the power of the Porfiriato, including its dignified image. Something had to be done. Responding to Malverde's taunts, Cañedo issued a challenge, knowing it would reach the bandit. If you can break into the governor's palace, find my sword, steal it, and get away undetected, then I'll have to concede that you really are that fine a thief and I'll issue you a pardon. Of course, Cañedo doubled the guard in the palace, laying a trap for the bandit. They watched and waited for Malverde to make the attempt. 
the guards were watching for a bandit, and Malverde knew that. Through his network of information gatherers, he found a carpenter who had been commissioned to do some simple repairs in the governor's palace. The carpenter was honored to loan Malverde his clothes and tools. Unlike the governor, Malverde had the skills of a working man at his disposal. So, in plain sight and in the simplest of disguises, the bandit walked into the palace, made the repairs, stole the sword, and walked right back out again. When he was safely away, he sent a message to Cañedo to go check the cabinet where he kept the sword, which, of course, was empty. Incensed and humiliated, Cañedo rescinded the offer of pardon and increased the reward to 10,000 pesos. Still, no one came forward. That is, until Malverde had a falling out with one of his closest friends and partners. Folklore differs whether the disagreement was over money or over a woman. In the end, it doesn't matter why, only that the traitor turned in Malverde. Some legends say that the man cut off Malverde's feet before he brought him into Culiacán to ensure that he couldn't escape and run back to their mountain hideout. Jesus Malverde, the generous bandit, the angel of the poor, was hanged from a mesquite tree on May 3, 1909 and left to rot as an example. Those bandits really had been getting out of hand. But the bandits got braver and louder and began to organize. The Mexican Revolution broke out in 1910, cutting a bloody path across the northern states for another decade. Malverde might very well have been forgotten in all that chaos, if it hadn't been for the miracles. While his body still rotted on the tree, a friend of Malverde's approached his remains and asked for help finding some lost mules and the money that they were carrying. The friend promised to take down his body and bury him properly if he would help. According to the friend, Malverde's spirit led him to the animals, and so he kept his word. Ignoring the risk, he broke the law to reclaim Malverde's body and inter it in a hidden spot in the governor's own cemetery. After that, others prayed to Malverde, gaining him status as a folk saint. He is said to be especially attuned to the prayers of the poor and the downtrodden, those he helped when he was alive. While his grave is unknown and unmarked, a shrine is maintained by his devotees near a major intersection in Culiacán. But this folk saint, Malverde, this mashup of Zorro and Robin Hood with a Vicente Fernández mustache, how did he become a narco-saint? How did the patron of the poor become the protector of drug smugglers? Like the follies of the Porfiriato's attempt at local governance, explaining Malverde's ties to cartels and the drug trade goes back to peculiarities of Sinaloa's social history. Sinaloa is made of Pacific coast and rugged mountains, a largely impoverished agricultural state with a long history of isolation and troubled relations with federal authorities. It was tenacious Sinaloans who first revered Jesus Malverde as an example of grit and noble rebellion. He understood poverty and oppression and fought them. When narcotics cultivation boomed in Sinaloa starting in the 1970s, 
The workers who planted, harvested, and processed the product were already devotees of Malverde. As many saw it, he was blessing them with an opportunity, and of course it was something the federales didn't want them to do. Malverde's transition to a narco-saint was easy and natural. In life, he had been a bandit, a lawbreaker. The narcos, too, style themselves after Malverde, who reputedly took from the rich and gave to the poor. The product grown and processed in Sinaloa mostly goes over the border, where it is sold to gringos with greedy drug habits and too much money to burn. These narcos take money from the undeserving rich, who happily hand it over, by the way, and send or bring their money home. They build or expand family homes, put in plumbing and electricity, and send younger siblings and nieces and nephews to good schools. They use the money to pave sections of street, then whole blocks. With so much drug money flowing back home into small villages all over Sinaloa and other states with growing narco-trafficking economies, progress and modernization are finally coming to parts of Mexico long neglected by federal and even regional governments. The perception is that many narcos, like Malverde, are attuned to the needs of the poor and actually do something about it. Malverde is also the patron of those who undertake journeys in their illicit trade. In life, Jesus Malverde knew what it was to go down the road carrying contraband and with a price on his head. The shrines and offerings that dot the roads leading north, the roads used by the traffickers, are a testament to his understanding. Saint Christopher might be the patron saint of travelers, but for as shady as Christopher might have been before his conversion, he's no Malverde. Saint Christopher, if he lived at all, might have lived and died in the middle of the third century CE. That's a lot of intervening years in which strange stories might collect. Various legends cast him as a ferryman, a giant, a mercenary, and my personal favorite, a man with the head of a dog. It was said that before his conversion to Christianity, Christopher vowed to find the devil and serve him, since the devil was more powerful than all the kings of the land. Christopher's miraculous conversion involves a river fording incident. As pagan, Satan-seeking Christopher was about to step into the water, a baby sitting on the bank called out and asked the man to carry him across the river. Christopher's first clue that something was up was the miraculously articulate baby. But he agreed, put the child on his shoulder, and proceeded across the river. The baby, though, got progressively heavier and seemingly larger, too. Christopher struggled with the weight, but the baby whispered strength and encouragement in his ear. Christopher pressed on to the opposite bank, and when he laid down his burden, he saw it was a wounded and dying man, a man whom even Christopher recognized by his stigmata and crown of thorns. Jesus blessed Christopher for his act of charity and service, and Christopher converted to Christianity. He was later martyred for his faith, probably by beheading. An odd story, certainly, and problematic for skeptics disinclined to believe in the manifestation of God as a baby who hits a miraculous growth spurt in order to convert a dog-headed Satanist. Though St. Christopher is much beloved, 
Some years ago, the Catholic Church removed his feast day from the liturgical calendar, partly because there's no evidence that such a person ever existed, even with a human head. St. Christopher's patronage to travelers is evident in his name, which must have come after his conversion. It's a contraction of the phrase Christophero, I carry Christ, in Greek. It's meant as a reminder to Christians that, no matter where they go, their God is with them. When you peel away the weird details that have accumulated over the years and get to that core, the symbolism of Christopher's story is lovely. Jesus Malverde might not have been a real person either. He's likely an amalgam of a few local bandits who were contemporaries, but his story is more recent and more relatable. Throughout northern Mexico, people can show you old sepia-toned photographs of great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers proudly outfitted to fight with Pancho Villa, and they can repeat their abuelos' memories of his own father's or grandfather's experiences fighting in the revolution. There are personal ties to Malverde's contemporaries. When supplicants of Jesus Malverde pray for his protection as they pass along the road to El Norte, they do so with the consolation that he, too, rode and walked along some of the same paths. He knew the same terrain. When they pray to him for luck, for money, for prosperity, they do so knowing that he himself felt the sting of hard times in rural Mexico, the shortages, the lack of opportunities, the indifference of elected and appointed officials. St. Christopher, or San Cristobal, as he is known in Mexico, might have been a mercenary or even a devil worshiper, but after his conversion, he cleaned up and became a Christian missionary. Malverde was a bandit all his adult life and an unrepentant one. But what was there to repent of? As a bandit, he broke the law, but the law was unjust. Malverde was the champion of oppressed people. From that perspective, his banditry was simply the most effective and direct way to bring justice and show mercy to the poor and the suffering, and to reject the imposed indignities of his social station. In a previous episode, I talked a bit about the appeal of La Santa Muerte. It's episode four if you'd like to go back and listen again. Part of the draw is her impartiality, and that includes her impartiality to conditions of sinfulness or righteousness. For those who revere La Santa Muerte, she is far less concerned with their sins than with their devotion. Her power and protection are available not just to the poor and downtrodden, but also to those who live outside the law and outside social norms, and she does not judge them for it. Jesus Malverde has a similar appeal, but from a slightly different angle. He may not have all the power of La Muerte, but he has empathy. La Santa Muerte doesn't judge criminals because it's not her concern, while Malverde doesn't judge those considered criminals because he was considered a criminal. La Santa Muerte is powerful, yes, but Malverde can be your compa, your cuate, when she is blessedly indifferent to it all. Whether as Al Ángel de los Pobres or a subversive narco-saint, Malverde's popularity is growing, 110 years after his death, his story still resonates with Norteños, and increasingly with Mexicans in other parts of the country and in the diaspora to the north. The main shrine in Culiacán, with its caretakers and festivals, is the center of devotion, but his spirit can go beyond that. 
the man born in grinding poverty, who grew up to bring relief to the poor while taunting an unjust government, ended up executed. Martyred, you could say. Hanged and left to rot. His life and even his death were difficult. And so, Malverde understands. In all those times I pulled over to the roadside shrines on Carretero Ocho, between the border and the sea, I never met anyone there. On the one hand, I didn't get a chance to ask anyone about the shrines. On the other hand, sometimes I found other things at those pullouts and was relieved there was nobody else around. There were signs of old violence, like that large but rusty knife tossed in the weeds. Signs of spite and bigotry, like the backpack once full of water bottles which somebody had opened and emptied onto the ground. Signs of other dangers, like the recently shed skin off a plump rattlesnake. These things were surprisingly close to the road, never more than a dozen yards. I never ventured farther than that, not alone. No. The people I met were just on either side of the border. Most were pleasant and kind enough, even most of the agents working the border crossings. I had a few difficult encounters with over-familiar men in the general store in Lukeville, and there was a convenience store in Sonoita where the clerk made me so uncomfortable that I never returned. I wonder now if these are the kinds of things a woman could pray about to Malverde. I wonder if a bandit would care about that. We didn't stay in that place very long. The economy on both sides of the border was in tailspin. Several pressures were pushing more drug violence into our area. So my husband put in his notice and we packed our things. We drove out under dark skies, barely getting over the border before midnight. It was April, sunny and baking and hot there by the Sea of Cortez and in the Arizona desert but snowing by the time we got to Santa Fe. I like that about road trips in the Southwest, that the weather on the other side of the mountain is often a surprise. That was my last drive up Carretero Ocho and my last road trip in Mexico. I miss it sometimes, strange shrines and all. You've been listening to Southwest Gothic, I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya. Find out more about me and the show at southwestgothic.com or Southwest Gothic Podcast on Facebook or southwest.gothic on Instagram. You can listen and subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Join me again in two weeks for another strange and spooky tale out of the Southwest. Thanks for listening.